You are listening to The Heart of Christ, a year-long podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. Throughout 2022, we will spend time reflecting on Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, so we can come to know not only what Jesus has done, but who he is. What is his deepest heart for his people, people who are weary, stumbling, sinners, and sufferers? So we invite you to grab your Bibles, prepare your hearts, and come along with us as we find rest in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. Welcome to episode nine of The Heart of Christ. My name is Keith Winder, one of the pastors here at Wheatland, and today I'm joined by Mandy Hart and Luke LeDuc. If you're listening to this, you probably know that Luke is the senior pastor of Wheatland, so we will not introduce him. Uh, Mandy is a member of Wheatland and I think has been here for about a year. Mandy, give or take six months on either end of that. And the three of us are going to be reflecting on chapters eight and nine of Gentle Lowly, which talk about Jesus as an intercessor, and also as an advocate. And so before we get going, Mandy, I want to know if you can tell us just a bit about yourself for people who haven't met you or maybe have met you but don't know you very well. Sure. So I'll start with a little bit of family background. So my, I have one brother and then obviously two parents. And my dad was an architect. So growing up, he was constantly doing work on our house and I've inherited that <laughs> propensity to tinker, to be very DIY. I do not at all have his expertise. So usually it's me spending a lot of time on the phone or video with him and or YouTube. Um, and results can be mixed, but I do love at least attempting. Uh, my mom was a midwife when she was uh, practicing her profession and that was really interesting growing up with that sort of paradigm in the home. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my brother is two years younger than I am. He is in the Air Force and he is one of the bravest and most compassionate people I know. Mm -hmm. And I am so mm -hmm. grateful that we have shared the journey of faith that we have. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of overlap in our areas of pain and struggle and need, and it's been a wonderful gift that God has given me someone so close that I can share with and be encouraged by um, and hopefully be an encouragement to. And aside from that, I love to run, I love to swim, I love to cook, I love to read, I love traveling anywhere staycation mm -hmm. all the way to, to international travel, particularly now that it's possible again. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's great. That's great. So as you guys have been reading this book, uh, both of you, how has Gentle and Lowly either reframed for you the way you think about the heart of Christ or maybe not changed the way you view it, but maybe deepened it or strengthened the things that you've already believed? What are things in the book or mm -hmm. some of the ideas, at least up now through chapter nine, that have yeah, either shaped, strengthened, or deepened what you already believed about Jesus? Well, I'll preface my response with a little bit of 
backstory uh, prior to when I got the email about our church doing this book, literally the weekend before, I had read that verse in, I believe, Matthew at some point um, in a devotional or just on my own. And where Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, um, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I was praying, Lord, I don't, I've not experienced that. I don't understand that at a kind of personal experiential level. What does that mean to experience soul rest in you? What does it mean that you're gentle and lowly? And maybe 48 hours later, the email comes through. We're spending a year in this book. It was like, wow. (laughs) Thank you. He knows I am dense and I sometimes need very obvious cues. Um, And then to top it off, a friend of mine, very close friend of mine, uh, about 24 hours later, she and I were talking and she recommended this book. And it was like, well, (laughs) funny fact, we're going to be spending a whole year focused on it. Uh, and that, that theme of gentleness has been so key for me. Um, and I see God really emphasizing his gentleness in other areas of my life as well. Um, and just thinking about how many people at Wheatland I've met that I would describe their temperament and their spirit as very gentle. Mm-hmm. And that has been part of God correcting my misperception of him as being harsh or being angry or being judgmental, even though I've always been taught that he's loving and gentle. Um, To actually believe and experience it is Mm. another layer entirely. Mm. Um, and, And realizing how not gentle with myself I can be and I just kind of assume that, well, that must be God's perspective. Um, and so it's been really revolutionary for him to shift my paradigm. Yeah, yeah. that's really helpful. I think one of the things that has stuck out to me as we've been spending time with this verse is the words, the invitation is to come. It's this physical so, like, for a guy who sits behind a desk and thinks about things and writes things out, uh, and I think maybe for any Christian, especially in the Reformed tradition, perhaps, which is always known as a little bit more cerebral and, like, brainy or, or trying to figure out systems, thought systems, that sort of thing, I think the invitation to come to Jesus and to find him this way has been challenging um, because it sort of turns around my maybe natural inclination to try and figure something out, and it's this come to me. And so that's been something that I've sat with. And um, yeah, I've found that I've been trying to find ways to discover what that coming looks like. So it's a one thing to be convinced that he's gentle and lowly. And I think that's what, of course, Dane Ortland has done so brilliantly. Some of the part that I'm still actually, like, honestly wrestling with is what does that coming look like mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis? Because that that's the other thing that I think I wanted to say about it is it's not this sort of um, figure out that this is how I am. 
and and lock that in your head. And then it, it's this like this is an ongoing. This is some sort of pattern, some sort of habit that's meant to be. So that's the part that I'm still wrestling with. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's interesting because the one the one thing I've really appreciated about this, and I'm sure it's quite intentional, is that every chapter doesn't end with, "Well, Jesus is like this, so now you go and be like this." Like there's mm-hmm. every chapter ends with, in a sense, it's this continued call to come and find rest in the, in Jesus, who is like this, and it's almost like that's the application point for every single mm-hmm. chapter, even though he never spells that out. Mm-hmm. But in leaving, in leaving it void of application yeah we then you keep coming back to the application is what does it look like for me to keep coming to jesus and finding G- rest in jesus mm-hmm. who is like this that mm-hmm. this chapter says and like this and yeah. like this and I, i've i've loved that because it just lets me at the end sit with oh what does it look for me to find rest yeah in jesus and oh after every single chapter over and over again mm-hmm. what does it look like for me to do that and that's been that's been wonderful so the two the two uh, chapters we're putting together here, because Orland describes them as very uh, interconnected, uh, is this idea of Jesus as an intercessor and as an advocate. So I'm going to read the two passages that are at the foundation, the foundation of these chapters. So the first is Hebrews 7, and I'll read a few verses. Here's 23 to 25 of Jesus as an intercessor. So the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So those are the two foundational passages that mm-hmm. Orland uses. I'm sure he could have picked other ones, uh, but those are the two. So as you hear those, as you read those, and then as you hear Dane Orland unpack it, when you think of these ideas of intercessor and advocate, how do you, I'll ask this in couple of different ways but how do you think that reflects jesus as someone who's gentle and lowly how do those ideas why is this chapter in here these chapters in here in a sense and also how do you think about what do you think about these ideas of intercessor and advocate mm-hmm. how are they connected maybe how are they is there a yeah. distinction there right. uh, well talk about that like first of all do we just need to go ahead and admit that Keith, you've already authored an angry letter that you're sending to Dane Ortland to yeah. demand what is the overlap and yeah, what is the difference yeah. between advocate right, right. and yeah, intercessor. I was that wouldn't make it in here. That I, yeah, I know. I, I ruined your plan here. But no, I think that's a really... Uh, I think in asking that question, though, like it does help us get at some of the distinctions that I think can be really helpful for us. And I... Keith and I were joking just before we came on and we're telling Mandy, we were joking about this earlier, that we think that Dane Ortland actually had these as one chapter in his draft and his editor came in and said, no, this needs, no, but it needs to be two separate chapters, but only kidding. But yeah, I think that's actually a really genuinely hard question to answer. It, I think it takes some work to pull out the differences in intercessor and advocate and maybe Maybe it's not so much that they are two separate things, but they're highlighting two aspects of one of his roles on our behalf and for us. 
Yeah, I mean, he does point out the difficulty in translating that Greek word, the parakletos, mm-hmm. uh, into English and how many different iterations right. there could be. And to the extent that there is a distinction between intercessor and advocate, I kind of latched on to the objective versus subjective distinction and thinking, mm. well, maybe it, the intercessory role is just presenting kind of the objective logical argument mm. of why someone who claims Christ's sacrifice on their behalf is forgiven. Right. It's just that kind of argument of, well, if sin requires a payment of death mm-hmm. and a perfect death has been given, has been made mm-hmm. by Christ, and he's now making that payment of the debt available to those who couldn't pay it themselves, then ergo, you know, kind of following the logic through objectively would be the intercessory side. But then an advocate who steps over into subjective connection with an identification with the accused, mm. the advocate's role comes into play when the accusation is brought, when an advocate is needed because a charge has been made. Mm. And the advocate crafts a personal, unique to that individual defense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. against the accusation or response to the accusation. So Christ then saying, when, you, when we are accused and we're accused when we sin, the accuser Mm. comes and brings the charge Mm -hmm. and Jesus says, no, in this unique instance with this individual, it's already been paid for. And he responds Mm -hmm. on a personal level to the specifics of our circumstance. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that sort of fits with the way that Ortland, at the beginning of that intercessory chapter, when you go back to what you were saying about the, if if intercessor if Christ as our intercessor focuses on the objective work that kind of goes to what Dane was doing as he talked about justification and like brought that justification that legal forensic work that Jesus has done on the cross in a human body as a once for all sacrifice for sin and that that kind of speaks to that objective reality of the payment yeah. So when I think of Jesus as then advocating and interceding uh, for us in this work, how do I not see the Father as cold and angry, mm. and even uh, dis- like cold or angry or distant in this? If if it's necessary for Jesus to advocate on my behalf, because when I think about needing an advocate, it's often because someone comes alongside of me because there is an opponent or there is someone else mm-hmm. that needs to, maybe their heart needs to be changed mm-hmm. or something's happening. I need someone on my side because yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So how do I not view the Father? Because I don't believe it to yeah. be true, right. but it's right. hard. <laughs> but uh, it seems like the, the syllogism yeah, yeah. says, if I need an advocate, then he must be yeah. ticked Who's off. Who's that one over yeah. there that's angry yeah. with me, or at, or at least cold with me? And right. says, I, would not, I want nothing to do with you unless Jesus comes along and, right. and pleads your care. And, and, right. Yeah, so how do I not see God as yeah. cold in this relationship? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, and I, I think what it... What it also is, is it probably speaks to many of our 
uh, and I think you mentioned this in the beginning, like this book has brought you um, further and deeper into not seeing um, God as sort of distant and cold and angry. So I think like it speaks to that our natural, um, the, the, the sort of ditch that we sometimes fall in, in our relationship or in our understanding our relationship to God to feel that way. But I, I think one of the interesting things is something you said, Mandy, is to see who it is that is our accuser. Um, and I think that's a helpful distinction. Like when we, when we, that um, our accuser is Satan. Um, it is the devil, the one who, uh, where is it? Is it the accuser of the brethren and sistren, um, the brothers and sisters? But so, so the context, I think that at least is the beginning of an answer is that our accuser is not God the Father, yeah. but that our accuser is the evil one, our adversary. And then I think what Dane has done really helpfully, uh, can I call him Dane? Are we are we on that level to where I just, is it Dr. Ortland maybe? That's probably my I haven't gone with Dane yet, but you can take that risk. Dr. See. Ortland, what, um, or should we just go with Ortland? That seems, okay. Is that more casual actually? Yeah, I don't know. Ortie? No, that's no. that's a bridge too no, far. Okay. Um, but anyway, I think what he's really worked hard to do and in other places as well. Um, we've talked about this here at Wheelan as not seeing God the Father and Jesus the Son as like pulling apart the Trinity in a sense. Yes, they are the same in substance and equal in power and glory as our confession says. So that's so I think that's the beginning of an answer is to see who it is that is our accuser and not see God, the frowning father, as our accuser. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. where I went with it as yeah. well. Like remembering that the Trinity is a union of three in one and Jesus's heart and the father's heart are the same. Mm -hmm. And so if Jesus is passionately advocating on our behalf, then the father is passionately receiving that. Mm -hmm. And the Trinity is... It exists as a loving relationship mm -hmm. amongst those three. Mm. And so remembering that union of their heart, therefore Christ can't be, his heart can't be different from the Father's. Mm -hmm. They can't have two different postures mm -hmm. towards mm -hmm. us. And then yet the other side of it being, well, who is it that Jesus is responding to with that charge that's been yeah. brought? It's not the Father. It's the yeah. accuser. And often, at least in my own experience, it's me. Right. <laughs> me right. against and I, myself and, and Jesus having to say, but um, but it's done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's really interesting because I thought something that um, Dr. Ortland pointed out early on in chapter 8 was the resistance of our hearts to justification as he was talking about what Mandy, what you've called that, well, I guess Ortland did too, but that objective idea um, is that we're, our hearts are naturally resistant to that. And of course, we know that is in a large part because of the way that uh, sin decomposes us as humans. The shame that it works in us, the hiding, like we see all that in the Genesis 
story. Here I go again, um, back to Genesis. But but all of that is right there in that opening story in the narrative of what sin does in human, and that sort of continues on, and the hiding from God the Father. You know, all of that is right there, and it just becomes such a default for us in our sin is that shame and that hiding and that viewing god as angry yeah yeah yeah. i yeah i think it's like you're saying separating the father that's not like we tend to do that Mm. in our our yeah that's really good we tend to do that i think because it just helps us try to make sense of the trinity because it's impossible to fully understand so the natural thing for us is either to say oh we're all one hodgepodge of one thing or let's separate them in our mind to make it clear but i think the the in well, the result of that then is that we view the incarnation as just the son's idea, right? Yeah, and that like Jesus, like oh, I have an idea. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be. I know you're mad, God. So yeah, here's what exactly. I can do: fix this. Right, right. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, no, that was like the triune yeah. God. Yeah. So this is the way we're going. This is the way we're going to bring about redemption and salvation in the world. And the son is going to take on human flesh and become a human. And the spirit is the nice guy and all this. Yeah, he's right. Like, okay, okay. I'll... Yeah. And the spirit was just waiting. Yeah. We tend to think he's just waiting around until Jesus went back. Right. And now he's active until Jesus comes back and starts doing his work. Right. But it's, yeah, I think that we tend to see the son. Like the old tag team wrestling. <laughs> like you can you <laughs> slap it. Yeah. You're up. Right? Yeah. I just, I just did the, the coach. Oh, okay, this <laughs> yeah. is probably going too That's... far. But I think you've, I think you've sort of dug down into something interesting because in Reformed theology, Mandy, you, you went to seminary, didn't you? Did you? No. You didn't go to seminary. No. Oh, I know. Okay. So anyway. In school, I'm not done. Okay. <laughs> One of them. Uh, but like in seminary, if you're at a Reformed seminary and, and in systematic theology books, there is this idea of the economic trinity. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. So like in the economic trinity, God the Father designs and plans our salvation. Jesus accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. And that's a helpful. That's that's not that's a helpful thing mm-hmm. for us to think about the triunity of the Godhead, the per, three persons of the Godhead: Father, Son, and Spirit. But analogies, which economic trinity is it's a it's an analogy but they they break every analogy breaks down at some point and i think maybe what you're pointing out keith is that is one of the breakdowns that can occur if that's the only way that you're thinking about trinity is the economic uh trinity Mm -hmm. father plans it son accomplishes it spirit applies it so while that's really helpful i don't want to be heard as dissing on or dunking on the economic trinity, you do also have to be aware of an analogy's limitations in some levels, and I think maybe that's part of that. Yeah, Yeah, because when, so another earlier chapter, he talked about Jesus being able to sympathize with us Mm -hmm. and our weakness from Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4. And again, our tendency might be to think, well, the Father has no idea. Us, no idea what it's like to be in a body. That, yeah, yeah. But it's just that Jesus doesn't, and so then Jesus experience. It's not like that's so disconnected from the Father. The Father's like, well, I don't, I don't get, I don't get you anymore, Jesus, because now you've had this experience. And so I think that helps. If we, 
Yeah, if that helps break down that that God is cold, that we continue to see the Father's heart mm-hmm. and and Jesus and the Spirit's heart all wrapped up. Yeah. Like this this is one. And you, that's what you said, man. Like this is one. Yeah, their love for us is one love for us, and their grace and compassion toward us is one grace and compassion. When we think about Jesus, then as the incarnate God. And we think about him as someone who's able to sympathize mm. with us because he is now human. How do you think that deepens Jesus' advocating work, or at least our uh, understanding? As we consider Jesus advocating on our behalf, how does it even matter? How is it even more significant? Because he was a human and experienced the things mm. that we experience in our lives. I again went back to the idea of kind of an advocate preparing a personal defense for the accused. And it's one thing if the advocate can look at other cases in the past and other people's examples and let me, you know, argue from these this past precedent that is outside of their experience, as opposed to saying here is my personal experience, which I'm mm. also bringing to bear as an advocate mm. yeah. and responding to this accusation based on almost like my own memories mm. of my similar experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. The idea of an advocate, like drawing on personal yeah. memory and personal experience is much more visceral. Oh, yeah. that's, that's really rich, Mandy, because you know, you think about how Paul talks about the sacrifice of Jesus, is that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And that's a different sort of advocacy than one who is really passionate. Let's say you're an advocate for the poor, but you grew up in sort of upper middle class and you're really passionate for the poor and you're an advocate for the poor, but it's a different thing to have grown up, you know, poor and then become an advocate. So that's a really rich metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the word that, I think Orland talks about solidarity mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. there's this deep solidarity now mm-hmm. that that we have, or that we have with Jesus and he has with us because of this, of this experience. And I was just talking this morning with someone uh, about suffering and us just trying to grasp in any way possible uh how do we how do we think about suffering in the world and i and tim keller in his one book his one of his biggest arguments is that in jesus god suffers and so it's not an explanation for the reason that they're right. suffering but it's a oh when you mm-hmm. recognize him saying recognize that the christian faith is the only one that says that the the being out there that put all this into place mm-hmm. says Oh, not only is this world going to be difficult, but I'm going to step into the difficulty and the pain with mm-hmm. you. And so, in the same way you guys are saying, to see Jesus as an advocate who doesn't just say, "Wow, like I see what you're going through, and I want to help you." It's not just I want to help you. It's I actually came with you, and I, I was with you in the midst of all that. Mm-hmm. And now, let's maybe it's um, maybe it's a bear a bearing one another's burdens sort of relationship now where he doesn't just say i want to help you out of that but i'm gonna i'm gonna be right there with you in police yeah i love that and that this this whole discussion makes me hebrews is so rich i feel like didn't we preach through that recently Mm -hmm. i know we did but now i feel like 
we got to go back through that after <laughs> yeah, yeah. doing Ortland's book. Like, okay, now let's go back and preach through it. But it made me think of Hebrews 2, verse 11, where it says this, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And to me, that... that that is advocacy at its deepest and broadest and widest. I don't know. That's to me. That's gorgeous. Just a, a whole different way to think about to, to step deeper into the tr- the life of the Trinity in a sense, um, and to see. Yeah, that's anyway. Yeah. And it reminds me of earlier in the book when the author <laughs> points out that. God's response to our sin and shame is not to shrink back or to mm-hmm. cringe, mm-hmm. even as he's yeah. reaching out to respond, which is my instinctive kind of perspective because I shrink back from my own. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to look at my own sin and shame. Mm-hmm. I find mm-hmm. it abhorrent. Like, how could God not? And mm-hmm. him highlighting the purer the heart, the more compelled to respond out of love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that idea that continuing with the the advocate analogy, it's not like we needed a court appointed advocate where someone, oh fine, like this is my number got called. It's like jury duty, okay? I just have to check off the box. Jesus is there Mm. volunteering, Mm -hmm. passionately wanting to advocate in that very personal way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to say, I've had that experience, let me stand in Mm -hmm. on your behalf and for you yeah yeah it's a it's a lovely thing that jesus uh chooses out of his love to be our brother (laughs) rather than Mm -hmm. oh we just happened to be so now he's got to do this because we're family right it's like so no i'm going to i'm going to put myself into your life and now i'm going to advocate for you have you guys had experiences of people doing that in your life out of Love, maybe one mm-hmm. instance of someone serving as an advocate, or maybe someone who over their lifetime has committed to being an advocate in whatever ways that's happened. The examples that I thought of, it, in my mind, like it, it translates to advocate, <laughs> but um, it's been a little over a year that God plunged me into a really intense season of facing brokenness and seeking healing. And at the time I was living with a really close friend uh, and she was constantly, I would say she was constantly advocating for me, particularly in prayer and in just speaking truth to me continually Mm. in a really gentle, Mm. but honest way. Mm. Um, And in a really tangible way um, I was, in, I was with my brother over the holidays and at some point in the beginning of the new year went through an, another really just tough, dark, draining uh, kind of mini season. Um, and I don't think I'll ever forget, we were at church one Sunday morning uh, towards the end of the service and just all of the weight of it, I just had a little mini fall apart weeping moment. <laughs> um and and just being able to like physically lean on him mm. and him provide 
physical mm-hmm. strength in that moment mm-hmm. was to me like a form of advocacy, knowing that like, I don't have to be strong because you are standing in for Christ in this moment. I know that he is strong where yeah. I am not and where yeah. I will never be strong. Like that's why I need him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are the two examples that I need. Yeah, yeah. that's really wonderful. That, that physical mm-hmm. piece too is, is such an important aspect of it. I, it made me think, Keith, of when you asked this question. Um, so I had a really interesting first ministry job out of college. Um, I was a youth director after college at a, a church, not in the PCA, another denomination. And uh, I won't tell the whole story. I probably told it in other ways that I eventually wound up um, losing my job unjustly, like in a really unjust, and if I were to describe the situation for you, you would see it was like a really dishonest. I was, there was a reason presented to the congregation that I was being let go because of finances, when actually the conversation that I had with the senior pastor was that it was about um, a, a doctrinal point of view where I had taken a different position on something than he had. And um, I will never forget that one of, this was a church that didn't have elders, it just had deacons, and the deacons sort of served as, um, they, they sort of ratified the plans for for the pastor, there's just there are many churches where ecclesiology is is that way, and I'm I'm not trying to be harsh about it. It's the reality. I don't think it's ideal. I think it has its problems. But um, one of my dear friends was a deacon, and he spoke up in that meeting, and then when he was when the truth that he was bringing to the situation was shut down and refused, he resigned his role as a deacon on my behalf as my advocate at a church where his family was. And he left that church over this injustice. And that, that was the most profound um, shaping uh, experience of someone advocating on my behalf that I've ever experienced. And this guy now, interestingly enough, is a pastor in the PCA now. Uh, I became a pastor first. He can't, he became a pastor second, but, um, it, it's, it's, I mean, this, that was, that shaped me profoundly. It shaped my future profoundly. And I feel like that highlights an important aspect of Christ's advocacy. It cost him something mm, to do that. Yeah. Same thing for Christ. Yeah. Like it costs That's him really good. to advocate for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's what actually I was going to ask about next. Like when when someone advocates for us uh, in like these three, like there's a, this immediate, big, deep connection with that person. And even if it's just a one-time thing, uh, that that's what that moment can be. Like imprinted on your on your heart and your mind, and you there's this. I'm gonna say it's a special spot for this person because that's so cheesy. But like it is. It's like that. 
that what that does to a relationship is so long lasting. But then to think of someone who does that constantly for you. And then when we think about Christ doing it for us, that he does it and it's always, it's, it's so, it was so costly. It was never sort of, well, I can advocate for you, but like, this isn't going to, this is, this isn't much, no worries, it's no big deal for me. I, no, no big deal, I'll do this for you. It's like, well, it's as costly as it possibly could, mm-hmm. could be. And, and to then see that, that's why, that's how I love this as a reflection of Jesus as gentle and lowly as an advocate. Because the first couple of times I read, I thought, ah, like how, how does this mean Jesus is gentle and lowly? How is this speaking to this mm. broad idea? And I think it's that because the costly nature mm-hmm. of Jesus as an advocate shows, oh, I see now. This is how, this is how it reflects his, him willing to be made low yeah. uh, on our behalf. Yeah. And it's a lovely picture of Jesus. One other thing that I, I thought, I thought this was one of the most powerful things, but you guys can just shoot me down and say it's not. But at the beginning, you guys talked about this idea of uh, who our real accuser is. Mm-hmm. And at the close of the chapter on advocacy, um, Dane Orland talks about that Jesus is our advocate when he, because he is, he shuts down all of our accusers. And for me, that was, that was a wonderful uh, image uh, and a wonderful truth that because Jesus as God incarnate and without sin advocates for us it shuts down every every accuser so whether that's whether that's Satan or whether that becomes <laughs> because of our sin us mm-hmm. like you're talking about Mandy mm-hmm. uh, or whether that becomes someone else mm-hmm. another human that Jesus as our advocate because of the sacrifice mm-hmm. he's made shuts down with that and then on the positive side, in a sense, he talked about how he constantly then, in his advocacy, is reminding us of who we are, that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus, that we are loved by the Father and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so how does that beautiful and wonderful truth sort of uh, shape and impact the way that now we respond to our sin so that we no longer keep accusing ourselves uh, well, how, how do we then respond differently knowing that Jesus is advocating on our behalf? I think it just brings such rest and peace. I, I This particular, these, there are a couple sentences in chapter 8 that I think touch on that and really just like leapt off the page to me. It says, we all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. There's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost, in Hebrews 7.25, means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. Those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot send our way out of his tender care. And just the rest that that brings to realize not only am I not alone in that, like that's where Jesus runs to first Mm -hmm. and where he's going to remain and where he's going to bring light Mm -hmm. and relief and it reminds me again of, of praying to understand, Lord, what does it mean? Come to me and I will give you rest. Mm-hmm. I think that's a part of it mm-hmm. is 
come to me with those deepest, darkest places. Let me go there and I'll give you rest mm. there. You don't have to keep bearing the burden of shame or hiding or ignoring. Yeah, that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes this idea of us responding to our sin in the way that we see Jesus responding to our sin, which is so counterintuitive, as you've said. It, it reminds me that um, the cross becomes the, the cross becomes the archetype of, ad, of advocacy in that he bears. So I guess that's kind of cheating because you could say the cross is <laughs> of anything that we're talking about. Oh, well, if we just look at the cross, which is a good instinct actually for us. But if at the cross, Jesus is our advocate, in the most graphic and visceral and and um, uh, powerfully moving visual image that we have of what an advocate is, um, I was thinking about how Jesus, coming through Easter, I did some preaching on the cross as the enthronement of our king, that it's on the cross that he actually becomes our king. And I was thinking about that Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And as, an, as a, he's our king and he's our advocate, and it fits perfectly with this because it says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. And I love that idea that he subdues us. to it, It's our tendency to push back, to push away, to see him in ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's just such a beautiful illustration of Jesus as our king and advocate, where he's conquering us in our pushing him away, and he is restraining his and our enemies as our advocate king. It's just so many tentacles, I think, that are interconnected in that. Yeah, yeah that's why I've loved that's what I've loved, not, not just reading this book, but actually getting to, to sit and talk with so many people at so mm -hmm. far at Wheatland mm -hmm. about it, because I read this book, and I, and I take things from it, and it's like, oh, that's really interesting. But then when you sit around, or if you're just listening to the podcast, and you hear other people unpacking, mm -hmm. like, I, I wouldn't have thought of the two things that you guys uh, yeah. just, just shared. And they're both beautiful and, and powerful. And and so it's just it's one it's a wonderful opportunity for us as a church to do something like this together mm -hmm. and to be shaped by each other and challenged by each other and for others to be pushing me toward Jesus in the same way yeah. that he is drawing me, using his people by his spirit mm -hmm. to draw me toward him. Yeah. Uh, for you guys to encourage me to come and find my rest in Jesus is wonderful. Well, that's basically why we called this meeting, because we've noticed <laughs> that you have... No, it is. I mean, that is what we do as brothers and sisters, and it's such a pivotal role of our life together here as a congregation, as a family, is the preaching, the, the liturgy, all of that does, the sacraments, but all of that takes center stage but if if you don't enter into these relationships where you have conversations and you're able to um yeah work these things work and talk and turn these things over together you 
you will miss the context in which these things are meant to be worked out, and that is in community. Yeah. Uh, because not everybody thinks like you, and not everybody thinks like me, and not everybody thinks like Mandy, and this is God's rich, diverse family. That's met. This stuff is too rich for one person <laughs> to ever yeah. grasp. Yeah. right, right. I read this book, for the, so it came out in 2020, uh, and I read it for the first time soon after it came out. It's a good book. And then put it away. Uh, but this time reading through it, yeah, it's been so, it's just been so different mm-hmm. because it's been in the, in the context of relationship yeah. and talking with people yeah. about it. And then going to our Sunday night things and hearing yeah. people share uh, on Sunday nights about how this has been shaping their life. And even yeah. if they're not even sharing specifically about the book, just how living as the people of God in this yeah. little community of Wheatland and reading right. this book together. Now they can share other experiences mm-hmm. and and reflect on those relationship to Jesus as being gentle, though. Yeah, and that's been it's been wonderful. That's a great plug for yeah. our Sunday nights because yeah, there's a lot of talking that happens in the context of our service time where people come up and share, but there's also a lot that's happening before and after it's done, and people are just yeah. standing around right. and right. and talking. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so th- thanks so much, both of you. Yeah, Andy, thank for the, you. For doing this. Um, and like Luke said, so our next, if you listen to this before Sunday, uh, May 1st at 6.30 is our next Heart of Christ Sunday evening worship service. So you could come to that at 6.30 and share some thoughts that you've been considering on these chapters or anything yeah. as the book's been shaping you. Or you could stand up and publicly refute some of the things some that the we've things just said yeah, on this podcast. That is your chance. <laughs> That's true. You could use it as that. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Heart of Christ, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit wheatlandpca.org.